Greetings and happy Halloween, everybody. CJ here with the first of what should be, if all goes well, two 2020 DHP Halloween specials. In this first installment, I'm talking to good buddy Pete Canones of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, and he and I share a love of horror movies, and in particular, a lot of our favorites are from the 1980s. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing two very fun horror-slash-comedy films from the 1980s, both from 1985. And they are The Original Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead. It was a very enjoyable, relaxed, freewheeling sort of conversation, and I always enjoy talking to Pete, and it was cool to meet him in person about two weeks ago, at, of all places, Tom Woods' house. And if you're going to meet a fellow podcaster who you've been talking to online for a few years now, if you're going to meet someone like that in person for the first time, really, is there a cooler place to do it than at Tom Woods' house? So there you go. Happy Halloween, everybody. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So, tis the season of Halloween, and it's always a time that I, I mean, I always enjoy discussing horror movies and books and all that stuff, but especially this time of year, it is extra joyful for me to talk about these sorts of things, and so I'm super happy to be joined by my good buddy, Piquinones, to discuss a couple of horror movie classics from the 80s. Pete, how's it going tonight? Doing well, man. Two movies that I really like, and um, I just rewatched one of them this morning and really forgot how great it was. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be discussing two cult classics, I think is accurate to call them, from 1985, Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead. So flip a coin. I don't know which one you want to start with. Um, start, with Fright Night. start with Fright Night because that's where my, my notes start. <laughs> okay. That works. And we might actually have more to say about Return of the Living Dead yeah. on a few levels, I think. But yeah. so Fright Night. All right. The original, not the remake. 1985. Right. We've got written and directed by Tom Holland, who did a bunch of work in the horror genre, including the original Child's Play, yep. which... I rewatched not that long ago and it's actually pretty good. The, the sequels to child's play get more and more absurd and goofy and whatever. And, and they're kind of fun in their own cheesy kind of way. But um, the original child's play is actually not a bad horror movie. Um, it stood up better than I thought. Maybe, may, maybe it's the, the low expectations when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, okay, this is you know, a bunch of cheese, but um, camp always stays, stays around, you know, where you can watch it at any time. And it was really campy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for what it is, right? I mean, grade it, grade it for what it is. So Tom Holland, actually, both these movies that we're talking about here were written and directed by the same guy. Like, not not the two movies, but 
you know, Tom Holland wrote and directed Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead, written and directed by Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon, thank you. So, all right, we've got our main protagonist, Charlie Brewster, who is like a 17-year-old version of an everyman, kind of a very almost personality-less kid in a way. He's not an athlete. He's not a nerd. He's just like kind of right in the middle of everything, kind of nondescript in a way, which makes us identify with him as a protagonist. And um, one of the few noteworthy things about him, he's a horror movie fan, and he gets the impression that a vampire might be moving in next door to him. That's our premise. Well, one thing that's different about Charlie is that he has a girlfriend. I mean, that's very strange in a lot of uh, situations. Usually in movies like this, there's the girl that he likes that the story ends up progressing to a point where they get together. This one actually starts with him having a girlfriend. And um, I think that's probably different than a lot of the movies uh, that are made that were made like this back then. Yeah. It starts off with him um, kind of being obsessed with trying to score quote unquote with his girlfriend, which he's supposed to be like around 17 years old. So that's totally believable. Right. I mean, all of us who are heterosexual males at 17, that's most of what we thought about, but then he sees his neighbor moving in and sees some uh, suspicious stuff going on. And he kind of stops his pursuit of the girl there. And that actually creates some conflict between him and her. Amy, I forget the actress's name offhand. It's, um, it's, it's Amanda Bierce. It's the neighbor from a married with children. And in this movie, she's 20, she's 26 years old. The actress is 26 years old playing a 16 or 17 year old. And pretty convincingly, honestly, yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. she looks like the girl next door teenager. Yeah. It was really odd, but I always remember her as Marcy from Married with Children. And whenever I see her, I'm like, oh, that's Marcy, the annoying neighbor from Married with Children. So, Wow. Yeah. I had not done enough wikipedia and Googling to remember that. Wow. I just knew it when I saw the name because I was obsessed with Married with Children when that came out. I mean, it was like there was no other show on TV like that. So, Yeah, I, I watched it when it was on. You know, um, both of these movies we're talking about, I was a kid, like a kid kid. In the 80s. I was born in 81. So when these movies came out that we're talking about, I didn't see them in the theater. These were movies that I saw, you know, on TV replayed and then on VHS as well. So, you know, they were they were part of me growing up, but they were ones that I caught after the fact. Right. So I was part of the cult that developed around these cult classics. The thing I really like about Fright Night is the the whole premise that what he's watching in the beginning is something that I grew up with. These Saturday night shows that were on like Channel 5 in New York City. Um, you had Chiller Theater and it was this whole production where they introduced like a horror movie every Saturday night. And this seems to be very much the same thing where he has a Saturday night where he watches Fright Night and they play all these different kind of movies. And um, of course, Roddy McDowell um, is the, uh, there's so many people who 
um, I'm trying to remember some of the people who hosted stuff back then. I mean, obviously, if you go back to my dad's age, it was like Elvira who was doing stuff like that, uh, hosting shows like that. But um, Peter Vincent is the character that Roddy McDowell plays who in all the he's the vampire hunter and the werewolf killer in all of the uh, the horror movies. And uh, it's interesting how they bring that in in a very uh, in a very camp way. Yeah, he's an an amalgamation of uh, Vincent Price and um, Peter. What's the guy's name? There's an English, like a Hammer Horror. Oh, I, yeah, I know who you're talking. About. I can't remember. Oh, um, man. There was a guy in New York named Zachary, who that's what they called him, and he did something like that too. He would have like Horror Night on a certain channel and introduce shows, and he would always like insert himself into the movie. Okay, so here's a funny one. The original Mighty Joe Young. I'm sure. Have you seen it at some point? Yes. Okay. So at the ending, there's an orphanage burning. And you, you know, anyone who's seen the movie before is like, oh, my God, all these kids are in there and everything. And they keep showing, you know, flames bursting out of this window and out of this door. And all of a sudden, you'd see Zachary in a yellow raincoat holding a fire hose and just pointing it at the building. It's some of the funniest stuff. That's the kind of stuff that I grew up with. I mean, that's like, that's my culture. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, both the movies we're talking about mix horror and humor in yeah. different ways, which is always a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. And uh, Zachary, I can remember him. Um, what was it called? There, there's an album out there. Halloween Hootenanny. Yep. Do you yep. know it with with Reverend Horton Heat and yep. uh, a whole I, bunch of people? I, I mean, I know it. I don't. I, I can't quote anything from it, but I know it exists. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, wild. A lot, of, a lot of good kind of like surf and rockabilly music, you know, from the alt scene. I want to say it was like fifteen twenty years ago, but horror themed stuff, right? So it's a great. I've got it stashed away somewhere. There, it, it's a great Halloween CD, Halloween Hootenanny. <laughs> anyway, so. So our man, Charlie, right, he's watching Peter Vincent on TV, and then, boom, there's a vampire moving in next door. And the vampire is um, in the form of Chris Sarandon, right, who people may know him best. I, I know him best as Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride, right? Yep. So the the character is... Jerry Dandridge, the most bland kind of, you know, nondescript sort of name. Waspy, completely waspy. Right, which is totally in contrast to to Chris Sarandon, right, who's, uh, I think, of Greek heritage and has that kind of like Eastern, Southern European sort of, you know, swarthy charm to him. Women love him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think he's a great choice for a vampire. Yeah. I mean, he was great as Prince Humperdinck, but as a vampire, he's got that great combination of like sort of sexy charm and also can be a little bit sinister, a little bit ominous. He's a smart ass too. Remember? Um, sure. What's, what's the matter, Charlie? Afraid I'd never come over without being invited first. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the best. It's one of, I remember I was watching that with my dad and my dad just cracked up laughing at that line. He thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm like, yeah, that is just such a great line. Yeah, no, he he is um, probably without him as the vampire, this movie wouldn't have worked as well. I think he he was a great choice for that. And so 
the conflict ensues from there where Charlie is increasingly uh, suspicious of his neighbor, right? And his neighbor is increasingly realizing that Charlie is, is on to him. Uh, and, and the conflict ensues from there. And you've got then the character of Evil Ed, who, <laughs> other than Peter Vincent, to me at least, is one of the most interesting characters in the film. Evil Ed, yeah. this kind of sort of friend of Charlie's, but it seems like they're not really friends. They're kind of some awkward uh, in-between sort of a, a thing. And uh, Evil Ed is clearly someone that most of the people in the, the, the school and the community that Charlie is a part of kind of look down on is, I don't know, maybe in today's terms, we'd say he's on the spectrum. I don't know. Yeah, he could be on the spectrum back then. It probably would have just been calling him a dork, but you know, Charlie's friendly to him and hangs out with him. And he just seems to be that typical kind of annoying dude who, if you're a nice person, you put up with him and you're not going to you know, insult him to his face, you know, unless he got really, really annoying. And, um, but of course he's also the friend that, um, the, you know, the quote unquote friend that eh, if things get really bad, will be the first one to turn on you. Right. Yeah. So as the conflict unfolds, you know, we won't necessarily go through the whole synopsis here, but yeah. um, evil dead, evil Ed, excuse me, is <laughs> uh, eventually turned. And, you know, plot spoilers for a movie from 35 years ago. Sorry. But um, to me, the the two most sympathetic characters in a lot of ways are Evil Ed and Peter Vincent. Yep. In yep. some ways, Charlie Brewster, but only at times. Like a lot of the time, Charlie Brewster is annoying. He's annoying. He's also kind of a jerk in, in a few ways. Yep. I, I have to say the one redeeming thing, though, is that scene with uh, Chris Sarandon where he kind of says, look, Charlie just walk away. Right. Yeah. It's the classic sort of, um, you know, road warrior slash back to the future of like, just walk away from the conflict and you'll be fine. And, you know, the fact that Charlie Brewster doesn't walk away and keeps coming back and, you know, trying to stand up to the bad guys or whatever makes him kind of a, a redemptive character ultimately. But the, the yeah. two that I have the most sympathy for are Peter Vincent and evil Ed it's interesting because Peter Vincent, obviously, when you're first introduced to him, you realize he's your typical kind of movie star where he's really self-absorbed. But he's what he turns out to be someone who actually cares and wants to be the hero. You know, and um, another interesting thing about this one is the concept of the vampire familiar, which is I'm trying to remember the character's name at this point is um, Billy Cole is the his familiar who takes care of him and watches over him. And then you find out, well, there's something weird about this guy too. Um, at some point, no spoil, no spoiler on that, but um, you know, you, you think he's just like a normal guy. And then it's like, Hmm, wait a minute. What, what exactly is this guy? And they never really explain what he is, which is really cool. You know, even after that whole scene on the stairs, you don't know exactly what he is. That's pretty funny. Yeah. And there's definitely in, uh, what's the term ambiguously gay duo vibe going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is left kind of open, right. Unlike today where they would have to give a full, yeah. um, you know, accounting of all that and uh, get yeah. into every last detail. Of everybody's... Sex scene. Let's face yeah. it. There'd be a sex scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where, where this but, is just implied. Yeah. And, and kind of left to the imagination. It's kind of ambiguous, but um, 
probably some probably some Anne Rice um, influence on that when you um, when you look at how that character was written. I mean, she had already written two. I think she had already written Interview and Vampire Lestat at that point. So, mm-hmm. and of course, it uh, works out that what Amy reminds uh, the the vampire right Chris Randon of his love from many years ago like what are the odds on that yeah that was so it was so typical i was just it was just like wait a minute i saw this coming from a mile away and also the way peter vincent figures out that he's actually a vampire it's like yeah i know i know exactly what's going to happen right now kind of thing um so yeah there is a lot of um it's kind of hard to make a, a new vampire movie even in 1985 it's really hard um but when they did have to go to the old tricks it was good enough. You know, the whole, to me, it was like, really, Amy wasn't even a part of the story until the very end. I mean, she was, but um, even after, you know, she is taken away from Charlie, it's not, she's, it's not, she's a big deal. She's almost hidden away kind of thing. So that was played well. I mean, there's just, there's an, it's like you said, there's enough humor there. There's enough, vampire classic tack uh enough classic vampire tactics there and you know, the characters are playing it off really well i think it doesn't there really didn't seem to be any horrible acting um even with the mom who you know typically in movies like this the mom is like a secondary horrible actress and she did play it over the top and she was like a typical eighties mom, but it was fine. Anyone who's seen any kind of eighties movies, um, you know, or like just the mom from disturbia kind of thing that just your typical kind of mom, horror movie mom. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me watching these two films, you know, in the last few days, both of them for the first time in a long time, uh, part of why I picked these films to, for us to kind of talk about, um, cause they were both films I've seen several times each and, uh, but not in a while and to watch them in the post kind of stranger things and other deliberate eighties, you know, homages and reboots and, and, you know, whatever you want to call them. It's interesting to see how something like stranger things takes a lot of those tropes and, you know, kind of redoes them as far as like the parents are completely clueless, you know, the, the kids or in this case, the teenagers are kind of figuring out what's going on, but no one believes them, right? There's the scene in Fright Night where he gets the police, where Charlie gets the police <laughs> and brings them and the police are just like, yeah, kid, you're crazy, right? It completely is useless, and the, I love it. the great part of that scene is when the familiar is just laughing along with him. When Billy's just like, it's like, oh, a vampire. And they're both laughing. And that, that's just hilarious because they're just complete. They're making him look like a complete fool. And um, it, Charlie's just like, and he's so frustrated because at that point he knows the truth. He knows that, you know, that there is something really bad going on in there. And um, yeah, it's just so funny how they're just making fun of him. And you can see somebody who, watches movies to be you know really sympathetic with the characters just being so upset that charlie's being made fun of at that point where i'm laughing with the other two guys probably because i'm always i'm always rooting for the bad guys so it's like yeah (laughs) yeah and another thing that this movie does well that um return of the living dead also does well is the practical effects and in this age 
of everything being CGI all the time and, you know, Hollywood movies just being orgies of CGI. It really is nice to go watch something from 35 years ago and watch all those practical effects. And every now and then some of them look kind of cheesy, but on average, most of those practical effects in these sorts of movies hold up better than the CGI of movies the last 20 years. Sure. Yeah. They just, it's not that they look realistic. It's just more in tune with the movie, I guess. I mean, I I don't, it's kind of hard. I, I don't really like a lot of CGI and I mean, I can spot CGI a mile away. I mean, I can even spot CGI backgrounds and it really pisses me off. When, when I see that, because it's like, well, you could just be outside, you know, and you didn't have to put a whole um, sky there or anything. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes practical effects look fake, but somehow to me, most of the time they look less fake than CGI. There, there's like a little, there's less of a suspension of disbelief required. I don't know. I guess because it's a physical thing, right? Even if it's a stupid rubber prop or, you know, blood that's bright red uh, jelly with food coloring or whatever the hell they're using. It's like, there's still something there that's physical. And there's something about that on the camera that makes it, even if it's kind of goofy and over the top, uh, more believable than if it's just complete CGI, you know, top to bottom. Yeah. I I mean, I'm watching the Nazis melt in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, that's that's still fun till today. You know, because it's so, you know, it's fake, but it's just like you're still cheering when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. If they did it with CGI now, it would just be kind of like yeah. lifeless and, and, and soulless yeah. and boring and be like another Michael Bay Transformers movies uh, where, where you're watching it. And you're going, I don't even know what's happening. There's some blurry CGI robot fighting another blurry CGI robot. And it all looks kind of fake and, and generic. And, and, and where's the script? <laughs> At least, yeah. At least in these movies, there's a script, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, but to me, the the reverse wolf transformation of Evil Ed, yeah. right, where he he turns into a wolf, and then Peter Vincent manages to almost accidentally stake him, and then he kind of slowly and painfully morphs back into a person. Um, the, the, the two scenes that made evil Ed a sympathetic character to me, despite all of his problems and his betrayal and everything. One is the scene where, where Chris Sarandon is kind of, you know, seducing him to the dark side and saying like, everyone makes fun of you. And if if you kind of, you know, join me on the dark side, no one will make fun of you anymore. And that, that's a scene that makes evil Ed sympathetic. And then the other scene is where his, his death scene right where you see him he's this wolf he's this vampire he's a monster and then he's slowly kind of as he's dying morphing back from a, a wolf form to a human uh, which is kind of taking the american werewolf in london you know situation and reversing it right where you had the dramatic human to werewolf now you've got werewolf to human in this movie and it makes you kind of feel bad for him wolfen was another movie that did pretty good with the uh and that's from like 81 80 81 it did well with werewolf uh, transformations i thought they were pretty interesting too wolfen yeah huh i don't i don't think i've even seen yeah, that one that's a pretty good one i'll have to check yeah. it out okay yeah i know um what's the other series the howling yeah yeah <laughs> 
I've seen some of those, but um, the re- reverse wolf scene was one of those ones I was looking at going, that actually stands up pretty well. You know, it's, if it was CGI, it would probably be stupid. You know, it's funny. I just looked up Wolfen. Albert Finney is actually the star of it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. I wonder if it's uh... I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Even if it's, even if it's a, a, a T O R R E N T site. <laughs> of course. Uh, you want to cross over now and go to the, go to the other one or, or what do you, what else do you have on, um, on Fright Night? Um, I had, had one more thing I wanted to ask you about given, you know, both of our podcasts and whatever, did you see any libertarian related or adjacent themes in Fright Night? I found one kind of tangential, but I'm curious to know if, if there's anything there or if you just find it an enjoyable horror flick with a little bit of humor. Yeah, I wasn't looking for anything. I would probably have to think a lot about that. Yeah. But there was definitely some uh, some agorism going on because Peter Vincent was doing a lot of stuff for cash. <laughs> That's true. Good point. <laughs> what did you say? The, the one thing... And this, this to me is common in a lot of vampire movies that isn't directly libertarian, but has libertarianish implications is the whole archetype of the vampire, right? That the vampire very often in books and movies is, I think, whether intentionally or not, a metaphor for psychopaths. Politicians. Yeah, yeah, because you you think about the vampire, right? Most of the time in in the best vampire films and books, the vampire is superficially very charming, mm-hmm. right? Very seductive, very smooth, debonair, right? Like Chris Sarandon in this movie, or you know, a lot of the depictions of Dracula, right? It's someone who's got this you know kind of sexual charm and this the suaveness, and you know, it's very often in modern vampire stories for people to not believe that the vampire actually is a monster or a villain, mm. right? So, you know, you think about a movie like uh, Fright Night or a movie like Lost Boys or, you know, a whole bunch of other vampire films. You know, I, I don't like it when a vampire film makes the vampires into zombies. To me, the zo- a zombie film is a separate thing, right? And a vampire film is is supposed to have a villain who's charming and smooth and attractive and all that sort of stuff, which is very much like the consummate politician. Yeah. I much prefer Stoker Count Dracula to um, like a Nosferatu. Nosferatu is more of an animal. It fits better for the, the archetype of the vampire and zombies. Zombies are just a, um, an archetype for the useless eaters in society. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The mob. Right, the idiotic masses and whatever. But I think there's something to the, the idea of the vampire that in a lot of vampire stories, the hardest part for the protagonist is convincing everybody else that the vampire actually is a monster, is a villain. Right. And it's something that, you know, people like you and I have run into as far as trying to convince people that politicians are monstrous right that they're all a bunch of psychopaths and sociopaths and um you know that they're they're completely full of shit as far as their their smooth charming exterior that at least some of them have even the police are going to laugh at you yeah exactly 
Exactly. I mean, and, and the more charming and smooth the politician is, the harder it is to convince anybody that he's actually, you know, he or she uh, being equal opportunity, right? Um, m- most of us would probably agree. Hillary Clinton is kind of <laughs> vampiric in her way, um, even though she's not as charming as Bill. It's a hybrid of a lot of things. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, I mean, the one thing about Trump is like he's just so, so, um, like not that charming yeah. and, and so, yeah. at least to, to many people, so offensive and rubs them the wrong way that it's easier with a lot of people to be like, well, this guy's up to no good. In a horror movie, he'd be the boorish neighbor who eventually gets killed at some point. <laughs> nice. Yeah, good point. Whereas, you know, you look at somebody much more charming, right? Like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or whatever, and it's much more of uh, the villain in Fright Night or the villain in Lost Boys. Yeah, yeah. One of these films. Lost Boys, definitely. So that, that's that's the one potentially libertarian implication sort of theme that I that I thought about when I rewatched Fright Night for the first time in many years. Oh, was. definitely. That's a good good pickup. That is, um, I've I hate myself that. Um, I miss that because that is something that I've noticed before. And I've actually said before, I've actually said vampires are like the government and zombies are like the, the mob, the, the masses. Mm. So, Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Switching over to a film that's got interesting similarities, right? Same year written and directed by the same guy, Uh, not the same guy as the previous film, but the same guy that wrote this film directed it. Um, both cult classics, both have great 80s soundtracks and a lot of great 80s, you know, kind of nostalgic style to them. This is actually one of my favorite, my favorite soundtracks and I used to have it on vinyl. I had a lot of my vinyl stolen at one point, um, but I had this on vinyl and I actually have this always on my phone. Some of the songs in here are great. I mean, the dams on here and they're one of my favorite bands of all time. So it's just a, a fantastic soundtrack. Return of the Living Dead, it's basically if you took mid eighties punk rock and made it a movie. I think you'd basically have return to living dead. Here's one of the, one of the problems I have though is, and it, it just goes to show that Hollywood made this movie and Hollywood is really out of touch. Even a lot of the bands that they used and a lot of the music that they used in it, these bands had progressed beyond the aesthetic of the seventies a lot of these bands now would be dressing not like the characters, the main characters that go into the cemetery. Basically, if this movie was shot in 1984, you have filmmakers who are like, well, this is what punk rock is, but that's not what punk rock was anymore. That's what punk rock was like five years ago. So they're like five years. Yeah, they're still five years behind. Uh, people at this point, if you would have had real punk rockers, it would have been people who were dressed, dressed in like Jello Biafra or um, you know, Henry Rollins, people like that. You know, you'd have seen more vans. You would have seen more vans and less spikes, put it that way. Right. Yeah, no, no good point. It's it's like a an awkward stereotype. Yeah, yeah. And it was super stereotypical. I mean, it was just, it was bad. I mean, it was just night. And even the movie says it happened right in the beginning. It flashes that it's 1984, that this is happening. And, and everyone's dressed like they're still in 1977 or 1978. So it's that that bothers someone like me who, you know, is, you know, pretty much punk rock historian. And is just like, no, that doesn't fit at all. You know, the cramps would never dress like that. So. This was enough before my time that um, I didn't pick up on the the periodization, right? It's like late 70s, 
early to mid eighties. To me, it's all kind of a blur because I was either non-existent or a toddler <laughs> uh, when that was actually going down. Right. So, but, but definitely I could pick up on, it was like a, a stereotype. Yeah, it was definitely right. Of, of, of what people thought punk was in the eighties, which you see in a lot of movies, right? It's a very common thing where even when in kind of mid to late eighties movies, not just horror movies where they show a New York gang yeah right it's like this weird punk stereotype where they have mohawks and it's this strange like interracial gangs where there's like white black and hispanic people in the same gang side by side which doesn't seem like it happened in real life very much at the time in 1985 i think when it comes to like mohawks it's like maybe wadi from the from exploited was still still had a mohawk but mohawks were pretty much gone by then or they had gone low pro you know, they had um, taken them down to you know, maybe an inch high or something like that. So uh, <laughs> I, I just get obsessed because I this is like really one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. And, um, you know, like 45 Grave is on here. And God, most people don't even know who 45 Grave is. And uh, I think uh, Rookie Erickson's on here. And it's like talk about a classic name. And you know, so yeah, it's just um, that's I guess that's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is because of uh, the soundtrack spoke to me like right from the start. So we're uh, written and directed by Dan O'Bannon, who, among other things, uh, collaborated with John Carpenter on Dark Star, right, wrote the original script of Alien, which my understanding is it's still disputed how much of the final product actually is his script versus did he just have a few basic ideas and the, the, the final script and the film had relatively little to do with it other than a few uh, important scenes or whatever. I know that's, that's still kind of debatable, I guess. He worked with Lynch. He worked with Lynch on Dune. He was doing special effects there. Um, he had a lot to do with the animated, the original heavy metal. So which is good yeah, stuff. Yeah, which is really good. And um, even the movie Blue Thunder that a lot of people haven't seen, which is a, a good turn your brain off, watch a um, watch a helicopter, an insane, almost like trying to make turn helicopters into like cars and have these just do weird stunts and everything like that. So um, yeah, he's, he did a lot. And uh, it's interesting that he did this movie because it just seems so from everything else he's done, even especially working with like Lynch or someone like that to have him do this movie just seems kind of odd. Yeah. And the movie itself has an interesting backstory because it's like kind of related to night of the living dead, which is much better known, right? The George Romero franchise and all that, but it's also its own thing. And there's that interesting backstory, which you probably know of, you know, that uh, what was the guy's Russo? I forget his first name who worked with Romero on the original night of the living dead in some capacity, but didn't have a whole lot of creative input, but was able to still kind of leverage his involvement in that to then make, I guess all the, the horror movies that uh, Russo made after Night of the Living Dead were like really bad, but he wrote some sort of novel called Return of the Living Dead because there was some kind of legal technicality where Romero could make movies that were of the dead, right? So we get Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, etc. And then Russo somehow in the legal wranglings ended up with the rights to the phrase the living dead, mm. which then he he wrote a novel called Return of the Living Dead that was then, you know, bought or whatever by by O'Bannon and then 
to some degree was the basis for this script, although yeah, I've never read it. So I don't, I don't know. know from, yeah. from yeah, I've never read it either. And and given the fact that the rest of uh, uh, Russo's whatever his first name was um, films were pretty hacky, I'm not interested yeah. in reading his novel. But from from what I looked up, you know, just in the last couple of days, uh, kind of researching this a little bit, uh, it's questionable how much of the novel return of the living dead actually made it into this film other than basically the title. Right. <laughs> I did like the callback in the beginning where it's um, you know, even before the credit, you, you see the opening credits you've or they've already invoked night of the living dead. And you're told that it's based on a true story that it actually happened. And here I'm going to show you the proof. It's, it just happens to be in the basement of a medical supply company. You need a medical supply. And um, yeah, that's just, it's so perfect. I mean, it's, it's a movie that is not scared to make fun of itself. And that to me is perfect for movies like this. Yeah. Compared to Fright Night, it definitely is, you know, brings in more humor, like obvious sort of over the top humor. Fright Night has the humorous moments and the humorous elements, but they're, I would say Fright Night is the more kind of earnest mm-hmm. film yeah, in a way. That's a good term. Whereas Return of the Living Dead is more just like having fun yeah. with it. And so, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it already, but our premise, right, is we've got a medical supply company that is storing some stuff that is left over from a government, a military experiment, whatever. And we've got this new guy on the job. Uh, what is it? Freddie. Freddie. <laughs> who's being kind of, you know, schooled by the older guy who's Frank and Frank is like, you know, trying to sort of impress the new guy. He's like, well, let's, let me tell you a story kid, you know, that, that, that film night of the living dead. Yeah. Well, it was based on the true story, but with a lot of stuff changed and a lot of details and, you know, it, uh, it, it allows them in this film to sort of capitalize on night of the living dead, but then, go in a totally uh, different direction with different zombie lore, right? With a different backstory. It's uh, it's really well set up. You know, it's like in the, before the credits even roll, the movie started, everything's rolling, everything, you, you know, what's going to happen. And it's just a matter of how it's going to happen and how it's going to play out. And I mean, there's just, there's so much bizarre stuff that happens in this and, and you know, just how, certain you know like what the zombies want to eat you know is just it's hilarious because when you take into consideration that pretty much that that part of the body that they want to eat nobody in this movie possesses any power in it at all it's just like empty calories at that point it's just so funny it really it really is one of the you could sit down i could sit down and watch it at any time and and just enjoy the music and just enjoy this ridiculous story. And another thing about this that I think that would lean towards anything libertarian is, I mean, the bad guys in this whole thing are the U S military. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The bad guys are the military. And then by extension, they're kind of corporate cronies, yeah. right? This medical supply company and the chemical company that was behind creating this chemical that basically makes zombies. It's a whole indictment of the military industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's might as well be a metaphor for 
what was it Dow mm-hmm. Chemical making Agent Orange to drop on Vietnam or whatever like yeah. that. And you know, so so our guys Frank and Freddie accidentally kind of loose the zombie serum in a way, right? By yeah. um, they, they ac- accidentally open up a container and there's it's, a reanimated corpse. So and, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't even remember all the, all the exact details, but basically the way that they try to dispose of the corpse creates acid rain yeah. of the zombie creating chemical or they, whatever. That just so happens to seek into the soil of the cemetery that just happens to be right next to it. Right. Where a whole bunch of punk rocker, Punk rocker, punk rocker stereotypes that are one of them is the girlfriend of the new guy at the chemical company. And so they're waiting for him to get off his shift or whatever. And then um, what's her name? Trash. Uh, Linnea Quigley. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's scream queen. I mean, I've seen there's a I think if you go on YouTube, there's a documentary about her, actually. You know, how she was a scream queen and so beloved in the eighties look to try to get her for any kind of horror movie. Yeah. Apparently her thing was getting into oftentimes kind of B horror movies and randomly being yep, naked, stealing the show by being naked. <laughs> yep. That's right. <laughs> and and sometimes in, in ridiculous ways, um, I know I've heard there's a, some kind of chainsaw movie she was in that I've not seen where, I forget the name of the movie. It's something ridiculous that sounds like it's fake. Like, you know, teenage chainsaw cheerleaders or something stupid like that, wherein uh, she, you know, is like naked and then is sawing people up with a chainsaw, right? Something like that. Hey, it makes sense, you know. I mean, it's It was the 80s. Yeah, debauchery, you know, Wall Street and you know, Michael Douglas. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, if, if you're going to make a low-budget horror movie, like, find random excuses for completely unnecessary, ludicrous uh, yeah. nudity. Full why not? nudity, too. Yeah. I mean, like, full. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, full. And it's like, okay, sure, this is the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the whole premise is absurd where she's, like, fantasizing about, you know, how she might die. Yeah. And this causes her to suddenly do a striptease in front of everybody. And, and, and that's, like, the... And, and, when they cut to that scene, that's the whole point of the scene. It's her talking about her fantasies about getting killed. And then she gets up and she gets dance. And the, the f- another funny line is when she gets up and she starts to dance and she takes her top off, you hear in the background, trash is getting naked again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a trope at this point. You know, it's like, oh. this has happened yeah. before. <laughs> it's so funny. There's just so much funny stuff in this movie. I mean, it's it really keeps you entertained throughout. And then um, the zombies are just beyond, just out of control. Yeah, yeah. There, there's important uh, differences, right, in the zombie, you know, archetype from the Night of the Living Dead zombies, as well as kind of most zombie movies, right, like like Walking Dead and other more recent things, where the the zombies here. Um, this is actually. I think the the origin of the whole zombies want to eat brains idea. I mean, maybe there's something more obscure from earlier. I don't know, but yeah, you know, kind of non horror movie geeks often just in their head are like, Oh yeah. Zombies want to eat brains. Right. You look at the Simpsons, right. When they did one of their Halloween specials with zombies brains, yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's the whole thing. But in reality, you go look at the, the Romero movies 
and even most zombie movies since the whole idea that they're all about brains is just not they just want to eat yeah. you yeah and this is all about brains and it's so you know you have lines like um when um Freddie eventually gets turned and he's like, I know he's telling his girlfriend who's locked herself in there. I know you're in there because I can smell your brains and lines like that. I mean, it's just completely over the top. You know, one one zombie as he's eating. And that's another thing about this is the zombies can talk. Yeah, they can talk and they can think. It's really odd. And I'm glad they can talk because there's just some funny stuff, you know, when 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 the ambulance shows up and they they kill them all. And then one gets on the, uh, gets on the radio and goes, send more cops. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Classic. Yeah. It, it's totally different because the zombies, they're not slow, which we've seen fast zombies in some things, right? 28 days later and, and, and some other movies where the zombies are like on speed. Lahord. Lahord was the, was the one with the fastest zombies I've ever seen, but that's a really, that's also yeah, a really yeah. good movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, the zombies are pretty fast in this. They're obsessed with brains, not just with eating whatever they can get. But yeah, there's, there's this whole thing where they can think, they can talk, they can execute kind of fairly complex strategies and plans. And they even kind of make them sympathetic because there's, there's the one point where they're interrogating the zombie um, that's like a completely, you know, rotting torso, essentially. And, and she sort of explains why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they obsessed with brains? And she says, like, we're in horrible pain. And brains are the only thing that uh, kind of gives us, you know, eases our pain, which was it. I don't know that 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 kind of struck me as like creepy as hell. man. Yeah. And sympathetic. Yeah. Right. Because um, I, I've had a couple of different bouts with a few different kinds of chronic pain in my life. And I've had other people close to me who've had, you know, different types of chronic pain. And that really, it's like, oh, I, I almost feel bad for these zombies at this point. Because if, if you've ever dealt with chronic pain, it, it's one of the worst things there is. What's really interesting is when they're, when they're interrogating her and um, the Ernie character, Don Kalfa, who runs the uh, crematorium. And, you know, she goes she's explaining why they do it. And he just like turns to, I think he turns to clue Gallagher, uh, to, to clue Gallagher's character. And he goes, it hurts to be dead. And it's just like, at that point, you're just like, Oh man, this is like, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good at all. Yeah. <laughs> and then it starts putting thoughts in your head, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty dark and, and kind of reflects that pessimistic nihilistic sort of, uh, kind of punk rock attitude and Don Calfa. Let me just put this out there. I mean, one of the most, um, Oh no, it's not Don Calfa. It's James Karen. Uh, that's the actor's name. Um, who was talking to Freddie in the beginning? What the hell is his name? The one who was training Freddie. Oh, um, you can't remember his name. Uh, the character is, uh, Frank. Yeah, Frank has probably the best death when he realizes what's happening to him. And he, um, goes to the crematorium himself. Yeah. Yeah. I was like that that to me, I remember watching that as a kid and I was like, uh, that's some heroic stuff right there. Yeah, on the one hand it's heroic, and on the other hand, you know, if he fully understood how miserable he's gonna be, right, as a as a zombie who's in horrific pain all the time, um, and even the brains seem to only give a very short term temporary 
kind of break right. from from the pain that they're experiencing. So it's it's noble and heroic that he doesn't want to kill other people. It's also at the same time kind of like, well, I want to spare myself yeah. the the agony, right? Which it can is, be both. <laughs> again, yeah, yeah. Well, these it's it's this this metaphor for addiction, yeah, right? Which is is very very profound like it's it's one of these movies where there's there's these multiple levels going on right where there's this silly almost kind of like slapstick over the top stuff and yet there's also these moments that you know very kind of, human yeah yeah to the to the the perceptive viewer makes you take a step back and go oh you know there's there's more going on here yeah but i just think it's I just, to reiterate what I said before, I just think it's hilarious that they're eating brains and like all the people whose brains they're eating, there's like not any brain power among any of them. <laughs> they're all really just dim. <laughs> yeah. All the characters in this. Um, yeah. There's, there's no, the world isn't going to lose somebody who's going to cure cancer in this one. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The, you know, another thing about this movie that's so different is, as, as far as like just the zombie genre, is that these zombies are way harder to kill, right? So, you know, the trope in most zombie films is if you can either get in some kind of massive head injury, like a headshot or, you know, enough of a bludgeon to the head, or if you can decapitate the zombie, like it's game over, that zombie is out of action that's it, right? That's that's common in the Romero movies, in Walking Dead, and in you know, probably the vast majority of zombie movies and shows. Right. That movie. Yeah. But in this show, they are the, the zombies are basically almost impossible yeah. to kill, right? You I mean they even allude to this when the uh, the protagonists you know first try to kill a zombie. They're like, well, if you just you know get it in the head and that's it. And uh, it doesn't work. And man, you can chop them up into pieces and each individual dismembered piece is still alive and still trying to do stuff. And remember, in the, remember, I think it's at one point it's Freddie and um, the, the owner of the, I can't remember what, what's the owner's name of you need a supply to Ted. Oh. I can't remember. And it's the, uh, the guy who was training him, whose name I've already forgotten. And you just gave it to me. It's, it's Bert. Bert. That's right. And the, yeah. the way I remember that is the more, the mortician is Ernie. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. So the, yeah, the, which I, I, I picked up on when I was almost done watching the movie, I was like, wait a minute, we had Bert and Ernie, <laughs> right? Bert was the head of the medical supply company and Ernie was the mortician across the street or next door or whatever. It well, was. they, um, so, yeah. cause they're like, I think they tried to kill damage the brain on one in the supply company and they're like in the movie it said that if you kill the if you kill the brain it kills the um it, it kills the zombie and uh freddie goes do you think the movie lied <laughs> it's such a, that to me is such a funny line because it's like sure you're getting all your information from a movie <laughs> yeah and within the the context of this movie it's a movie that was Based on some true stuff, but also had some of the facts changed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, in in terms of the the meta, the meta references to Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. There are a lot of meta references in this. And um, it's got to be one of the earliest horror movies that gets as meta as it does. Right. I mean, there's the more recent stuff, Cabin in the Woods and all that stuff that goes way meta. But um, this was kind of a pioneer in the 
the meta self-referential uh, horror movie. Yeah, if you if this is like um, the you know the Virgin meta movie, Cabin in the Woods is like the Chad meta movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good one too, though. That's that. that uh, I love that one. I love when you look at the. Um, when you look at the checkboard for, you know, what it is, and then you look down at the bottom and there's like deadites dead. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, that's just perfect. And everything. And, um, yep. you know, the merman finally coming to, yeah, that's just, oh, perfect. yeah. It's so perfect. That movie, when I first saw that movie, the first time I saw it, I was just like, how did somebody not make this before? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And it's, it's a lot better. Um, I'm, I'm probably, I, I guess sort of within, uh, a minority within the horror fan community. I'm not a big fan of scream. Okay. I, I know a lot of people like scream and it's also got, you know, some humor and some meta stuff and whatever, but for whatever reason, scream doesn't quite work. It doesn't me. stand up. I, I watched it like last year and it doesn't stand up from when it came out. I mean, when it came out, it was a big deal and everything. And you know, people were really on to that like um retro kind of thing but when you watch it now it really doesn't stand up as being really entertaining you know i mean i'd rather yeah, i'd rather watch event horizon or something like that you know that's mm-hmm. that's a movie that'll never stop being com- that will completely freak me out where i don't want to go to go to bed <laughs> yeah that 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 is very underrated yeah. uh, event horizon yeah, and, yeah. and the first alien you know, the first alien is scary as all get out. I mean, really, oh, yeah. that's a horror movie, and most people don't realize. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 basically a slasher film yeah. in space, yeah. right? It's the same sort of archetype and all yeah. that. And you you don't know what the um, you know something broke out of the guy's chest, and you know what that looks like, but you don't know what the real thing looks like until you know they hold that off for a while. And um, that, that's always a good, uh, you know, it's like in Jaws holding off seeing the shark until, um, you know, basically halfway through the movie. Oh, yeah. Spielberg was uh, helped by the fact that the goofy mechanical <laughs> shark that looks kind of goofy uh, didn't work well. And so he had to, you know, imply a lot of things and, you know, show stuff other than the shark. Whereas you go watch some of the more modern shark attack movies where it's all CGI and you see the whole shark from, you know, the first scene or whatever. It's like, it's yeah. not, not scary, not suspenseful. Yeah. Right. In general, yeah, it, you're better off with the monster. You can't you know, see. It's like the original psycho. Um, the thing that made that so great is you didn't, you thought the mother was alive, you know, and you, it, the, the reveal isn't for a very long time. You know, so there's just this build up, and there's a lot of things in Psycho too where you don't see what's happening, you don't see the attacker, you only really see a shadow in the in the shower scene, things like that. Yeah, that that's be- I like when they do that uh, better than you know just showing their cards all up front. Yeah, in general, I, I've always preferred the more implied horror, I guess, in a way. Like I find the original Halloween to be a much superior film to say something like uh, nightmare on Elm street, even though I like nightmare on Elm street, I don't have a problem with it, you know, for what it is, but as far as, as far as for like, what's actually, yeah, exactly. What's, what's actually more scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the thing I remember seeing the thing as a kid with my dad. And um, I, I think my dad was actually freaked out by that a little bit. 
because it was just, yeah. it was one of those movies that held it back, you know, held their cards back. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, circling back to Return yep. of the Living Dead, <laughs> the, the one thing, and, you know, you and I could probably go oh down God. rabbit holes of talking about horror we, movies we, for, for like 10 we, hours. We could do what Scott Horton does with foreign policy like right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that idea of zombies, that there's not a quick and easy way to kill them. Even though this movie has a lot of humor to it and has like a kind of, um, you know, almost farcical tone at times, still that concept does scare me the concept of what do you do with a zombie that is so hard to kill that even like little pieces of it, even if it's from like a rotting corpse, right? Whereas the, the Romero zombies, it's usually like freshly killed people Mm -hmm. that can be turned into zombies. Whereas this is like, it seems like even people that are just, you know, a few rotted body parts that have been dead forever um, can, can be reanimated. And then it's so hard to kill them. Like I've always taken comfort in the fact that in a regular zombie movie, and I guess I'm deranged. So I, I still think in terms of like surviving a zombie apocalypse and whatever, but I've always taken comfort in the fact that like, all right, I can shoot pretty good. And you know, I've got some kukris and Bowie knives if I run out of ammo and I know what to do with those pretty well. So like, all right, I'm good. If the zombies do uh, come, I can, I can handle things, but not these. you look at these zombies and it's like, what the hell do you do? You know, you, you could just like empty a whole magazine into their head and, and, and it doesn't do the job. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really a metaphor for the government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. I, I mean, the first movie that I can really remember really scaring me that I watched was actually the original Terminator. And I watched Terminator probably too young, but I was a kid in the eighties. So like, Hey, parents were just like, you know, asleep at the wheel or not there. Um, So I was probably like maybe five watching terminator That's how old that was when i saw the exorcist yeah yeah and and uh and, and terminator scared the hell out of me and it's, it's the first movie i can remember and i had seen some like you know typical horror movies or whatever before that but terminator the thing about terminator that scared me aside from like the glowing red eyes and you know arnold losing his skin was just this idea that he's unstoppable right which yep. I don't know that that always bugs me because you know I'm, I'm I'm someone like I I think I can handle myself and defend myself or whatever but when you present me with a well depicted antagonist that you know you shoot him in the head doesn't do it right then then you're left going what the hell do I do now right and that that's really scary well what's fun about that is movies that take that into consideration like Dawn of the Dead two thousand four. Um, you know, it's like, oh, let's go to an island. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go escape to an island because nothing. And then they pull up to the island and what happens? It's like, yeah, right. you couldn't, you weren't going to get away from it. So yeah, that is um, taking into, taking that into consideration. There is a, those movies where, you know, no one survives at the end kind of thing is, yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's some horror movies where, 
you know, the, the protagonist either does a bunch of stupid things or obviously doesn't know what the hell they're doing as far as like defending themselves. And you kind of go like, well, you know, if this person just had a gun and kind of knew how to shoot, or if this person just made a few basic smart decisions about like not, you know, going into this dark alley in this situation or whatever. Um, And so it's, it's harder for someone with kind of basic self-defense knowledge and basic, you know, situational awareness to, to watch a movie like, like that and go, Oh no, I'm scared. Cause you just go, well, if this person was paying attention and knew how to defend themselves, they'd be fine. Right. But you know, then you run into these movies where oops, even people who kind of know what they're doing and don't make stupid decisions and kind of have some tactical savvy, even uh, it's not enough. Right. And that's well, the, more scary. Yeah, the movies like that, that always freaked me out were the ones where technology was going to take over like um, runaway with Tom Selleck and Gene Simmons back in the eighties where, no, I've never seen, seen that. One. Oh man, that's about you know, basically you've gotten to a technocratic society and there's robots and things like that. And Gene Simmons is like this serial killer who like creates all these like spiders that can get in the house and, and kill people. And it's pretty wild. That's those have always freaked me out. You know, I mean, the Terminator ones always did. That was something um, that I agree with you on. Always bothered me about the Terminator movies where you just couldn't stop them. You know, and then you had T two come out, and they could they were they could actually become molten, you know, where they, they could become liquid and they could just walk through like bars and things like that instead of just tearing them down. Uh, but yeah, tech, technology. Yeah, and with the liquid metal, with the liquid metal Terminator, you can't even slow them down as much, right? At least with the with the old school Terminator, you could like you know shoot them a bunch of times with a shotgun, and it would at least temporarily kind of slow yeah. them down. Uh, liquid metal guy like no problem yeah. you know yeah so those so, so those kind of technology movies always uh always scared the crap out of me because it's like well how, how am i going to defeat this yeah. yeah and it gets even scarier when you you know look at the kind of technocracy end of it right that everything you're doing is under surveillance don't, and, don't get me started uh, that's pretty much all i've been studying lately so <laughs> yeah are, are you are you going to be um on the goose next week uh next week i should next week i should be able to we're going to talk technocracy um I, I think next week is mental health but it's another earlier one so i'll okay. be there yeah early one i can i can normally do yeah probably technocracy will come up tangentially somehow or other it usually does in some yeah, yeah that, it, it sneaks in a lot lately it sneaks in a lot so um the military industrial complex, right? The, the military and the kind of corporate cronies, they're ultimately the villains in this film in return to living dead, right? They're to blame for the whole problem. And then they don't handle the situation very well. Plot spoilers end of the movie, a nuclear attack happens, right? Um, There's sort of a, to me in the scenes in this movie where they're dealing with the, the military, officers and whatever there's like a dr strange love sort of vibe going on where there's this very, very much, kind of very much so yeah yeah yeah, yeah i yeah, picked yeah, up there, on that too it's very yeah. straight face sardonic kind of uh, dark humor this gallows humor um and so but even that right doesn't solve the problem because they they basically nuke the place so there's this very pessimistic ending and then it's more pessimistic because at the end of it they're like oh and and don't worry, it's raining. So 
that'll that'll deal with the problem. But of course, it's the zombie chemical rain. Yep. Right. Yeah, I like I like when it uh, when a movie gets left open at the ending, and it's pretty much like you know that like probably if not that country, the world is going to be destroyed. Very much like Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, and in a different way, like um, the thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, the ending of that, which is is left sort of ambiguous, but also pretty pessimistic in yeah. a way. Um, but were there any other, aside from the you know kind of generally um, military industrial complex being the bad guys and authority figures in general being at best incompetent and at worst part of the problem, any other? sort of libertarian-ish, anarchist-ish themes on Return of the Living Dead that I'm missing or that we've overlooked? Eh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I've watched that so many times that something would have jumped out at me besides the whole, the over, I mean, the mil- it starts, you get the military from the start and you get it to the end. And um, yeah, there's really nothing in there. I mean, I'm sure you could force some things, but um yeah, I mean, it's just really a, a good, clever, funny lines thrown in there. Somewhat well acted for what well acted for what it needed to be. It needed to be, and I've used this term before, the kind of campy um, cult cult movie. And I think the acting was perfect for it. I mean, it was just you know, no one was. Didn't seem like anyone was overacting. It didn't seem like anybody was really doing a terrible job acting. It just seemed to be really good for what it was, and that was uh, turn your brain off and um, you know have fun, enjoy the music, kind of thing, and um, see these horrible, horrible zombies that uh, went way beyond anything that Romero was thinking. You know, there was something about the eighties that was just a golden age for genre blending films in particular that blended, you know, horror comedy and or sci-fi that, you know, occasionally a movie has been made since that that's very good that, that mixes those things together. But there was something about the eighties and I'm not sure what it was where, you know, it kind of starts with American werewolf in London right in 81 when I was born. And then from there, like I was just going over in my head, trying to think of all the different excellent eighties films, you know, and they, they vary in tone. Some of them are more, more towards the humor end. Some of them are more towards the, the horror end or sci-fi or whatever, but that blend these together in different ways. Reanimator and, did it. Reanimator is one of my, one of oh, my yeah. favorite horror movies of all time. I, it's so well done. So perfect. Um, um i can't i can't remember the actor's name um who plays the lead in it um but then you had like you know like one of my first real crushes barbara camp uh crampton and that playing you know the blonde uh, working in the, working in the lab who you know beca- becomes the target of the the lunatic um the lunatic doctor and um yeah it was just i love that movie i've uh, that's another movie I've probably seen 10 or 15 times. I probably saw it 10 or 15 times when I was a kid. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's another one that you could watch. And then they sort of did a sequel to it, but it wasn't really, but it was still based off of Lovecraft. It was called from beyond. And that had the same, pretty much the same cast in it. And that was pretty good too, but um, it never reached what reanimator did. Reanimator was a really, really good one that mixed 
horror and humor and everything in it. So, yeah, that that was one that I thought of. And then, you know, you had Night of the Creeps. <laughs> That's another another fun cult classic. Um, Night of the Comet. Oh, Night of, of the Night Comet is that. Is, there's a lot of uh, social commentary in that one too. A lot of class class commentary in that. That's another one of those that I haven't seen in a while that I keep meaning to uh, rewatch that I'm sure I, it's one of those movies you probably see more, you know, things each time that you missed. Yeah. There's stuff buried in there. They buried stuff in there. There was a lot of social commentary on that one. Yeah. And then one of my, my favorites monster squad, (laughs) right. Which is also, you know, it's more towards the, the, the kind of lighthearted end of, of things, right. It's sort of like, like Goonies dropped into, you know, a horror scenario or whatever. Um, but Fred Decker, right. Same writer and director as, as night of the creeps. Um, you had the house movies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. House house Two. those similarly kind of um, lost boys, which is a little more serious, but still has some humor work. Very in. much so. Yeah. Right. Comic, um, they work comic and, books into that too. Yeah. 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 The, um, the, the Corey Feldman character in particular, right, brings in a little yeah. bit of uh, humor into the whole Good thing. music. And then, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it. I was thinking about it. I think it might be the only Joel Schumacher movie that I really like. <laughs> I was trying to think if there's any other thing Joel Schumacher did that, that's good. <laughs> um, but Lost Boys, it's like it, it, it's just perfect for what it is. Yeah. And then another one that's not as well known as Lost Boys today that I rewatched about a year ago and actually enjoyed that I hadn't seen probably since I was like 10. And that's Dead Heat. Oh, yeah. With um, with Schwart- Joe Piscopo yeah, yeah, yeah. and who's the other guy? I can't remember the other guy's name. I can see the guy's face in my head, but I can't think of his name. Oh, man. Italian guy? There was Joe Piscopo, and then the other actor is this more sort of like kind of pretty boy guy. It's like, you know, really, you know, stereotypical handsome actor. Um, but I can't think Trey of his Williams. name. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's it. And his name was his name it. was Roger Mortis. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That, yeah, no, that that's another one that, you know, I remembered watching as a little kid. And a lot of these movies I didn't see in the theater. A lot of these I mm-hmm. saw, you know, on the old VHS or I saw them when they were on TV or whatever. Um, but then a lot of them, you know, back then, whether they're on VHS or on TV, you watch them over and over and over the way people often don't today. Um, but anyway, Dead Heat, when I went and watched that, I was like, this is actually pretty fun. You know, I, I was, uh, my expectations were low. I was thinking this is probably going to be really dumb and whatever. And it, and it was, you know, kind of campy and cheesy and whatever, but it was actually entertaining well you know what's interesting about both of these movies is that they spawn sequels and um the return of the living dead sequels were god-awful compared to i haven't seen any of them um they're they're unwatchable but like fright night 2 was actually pretty good because it was yeah oh well what was his name again was it dandridge vampire yeah jerry dandridge he has a sister who also happens to be a vampire who's coming to coming for revenge for for uh her brother and everything so you know that one that one's at least watchable uh return of the living dead actually has two i think maybe even three 
sequels and they're just the I, I saw the two and three and it was just I, I only saw them just to say that you know just to know that I saw them to say that how terrible they were and everything but Fright Night 2 was actually pretty good what did you think of the remake of Fright Night and from I think believe 2011 because Tom Holland actually had a hand in on that one too yeah and that's the one where Colin Farrell yes. right is the yeah, yeah. Jerry Dandridge vampire yeah. character I was trying to remember much about that at all i i know i saw it soon after it came out it's not it's not memorable yeah exactly that like that's basically you know i didn't i didn't bother to go rewatch it or anything but i was just trying to rack my brain like i know i saw it at least once maybe twice i might have seen it in the theater and then soon after it came out on back then might have been dvd or streaming or i can't remember if i was on streaming yet in 2011 but i was just trying to rack my brain like could i remember it at all in a good or bad yeah. way. And it was just like, my, my memory is it was competent. It wasn't terrible, but it also just didn't really have any, any spark to it. Didn't, didn't have any of the charm of the, that original. was, that was my feeling about the, um, the Rob zombie remake of Halloween was there are things I remember about it. There are parts I remember about it, but it wasn't to me, it wasn't as memorable as the original. Yeah, well, Halloween is one of those just lightning in a bottle. But, but you know, there are <laughs> other, like, there is, um, what's the, damn it, the Salem movie that he did. Um, something of Salem. I really like this movie, and it's really pissing me off that I um, I can't remember it right now. Are you talking about John Carpenter no, or I'm Rob, about Rob Zombie? Zombie. Um, the Lords of Salem. Did you see that? It sounds familiar, but I don't think I saw it. Yeah, it, it was one of those it was just one of those suspenseful movies. There wasn't a lot of action and uh, my wife and I really enjoyed it. We, we really liked it a lot and it was not a movie I expected to like. That was a horror. That was more of a horror movie um, because there was, there was hardly any action in it. It was mostly suspense. It was mostly in your head. It was a lot of dialogue. Uh, there was a lot of implication, but it was, uh, I actually enjoyed that one. I enjoyed that one more than, um, what was the one that came out last year? 31 or 32 or uh, that was like, um, this is how unmemorable it is. You know? So, and what was, what was the, um, I think, I think the reason I'm even talking about Rob is because, you know, he decided he was going to do Halloween and redo Halloween and then go and do Halloween too. And it just, as much as I love the guy and a lot, I like a lot of his music. That was just, um, and I mean, I liked house of a thousand corpses. I thought that was a pretty good movie. Devil's rejects was just ridiculous, fun, turn your brain off kind of fun. Um, part three that came out, I can't even remember what it was called because it was so unmemorable and Sid Haig had died by that point. So I think he was only, he was in it for like five minutes. So, um, but yeah, yeah, a lot of, I mean, really, when it comes to modern horror, even like the Evil Dead remakes, it's just, how do you remake those? I mean, it just, do something original. I think that's probably why I got so excited by Cabin in the Woods. It was something new. It was something original. They were borrowing from here, there, and everywhere, but still managed to make a movie that nobody had really seen before. And you just don't see, you don't see horror like that anymore. Yeah. Well, that's like when I think about a lot of the great eighties movies, right? Not just the horror movies, but even, you know, the action movies and stuff like that, they weren't all remakes, 
sequels, prequels, reboots, right? They they often paid homage to earlier stuff, right? In the way that, you know, Star Wars was kind of doing a, a better version of some of the old sci-fi stuff. And, you know, Indiana Jones was doing a, a better version of a lot of the old pulp stuff. And a lot of the horror movies in the 80s were throwing, were, were calling back to some of the earlier movies. But at the same time, they were doing something new. And, and I really feel like our, our, our culture in terms of our, our movies and music and all that. Now, if you go uh, to the indie stuff, go outside of the mainstream and the corporate stuff, there's great stuff going on in music and movies and whatever right now. But if you just look at the mainstream kind of corporate stuff, it's, it's so much of it is, is just completely uh, recycled, you know, reboots, remakes, prequels, sequels. Um, just, it, it, it just, just really the total recall remake i mean i i I can't even remember it i don't know what they were doing i don't even remember what the plot was i remember at some point they like had some thing that could like transport them from one side of the globe to the other and you went straight through the earth but it was like i I have no idea what that was It, it was so unmemorable where if you think back to the original total recall it's like there are so many parts of it that just flash right into your head. You know, it's just so much visual, you know, Schwarzenegger getting his ass kicked by Sharon Stone and stuff like that. I mean, it's just perfect stuff like that, you know, stuff that they, it seemed like they were really trying, put it that way. And I think that when you add such easy special effects where special effects can be done so easy that people tend to use that as a cheat, or they just tend to rely upon it too much. And then plot just goes right out of, out the window. I mean, just give me something with plot. I mean, I don't even need, I don't need CGI. Just go old school. I mean, at this point, you know, just give me something that, you know, I can sit down and watch. And I mean, even something like, um, was that uh, the original um, Delta Force with Chuck Norris? Give me something mm-hmm. like that. And it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous movie, but it's so much more enjoyable and rah rah patriotic and than anything they put out today. Because now, you know, there was some real campiness to that, where everything they put out today is dead serious. You have zero dark thirty and everything, and it's like, yeah, you're supposed. To, I'm supposed to believe that this all actually it happened this way, and it's just so. Just make it fake. Just I want to walk in knowing it's fake. You know, I want to be able. I don't. I don't want to have to worry about the commentary about it. You know. Yeah. Well, Zero Dark Thirty is basically written and directed by the yeah, CIA. I know. So. It's so. I, I wonder <laughs> how many people realize that. <laughs> yeah. Not. Not many. Um, yeah. I. I think part of what's gone on is that the 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 kind of corporate suit types have gotten more. Of, of like the balance of power against the creatives. And so the genuine creatives have to either go indie, you know, and, and make low budget films and whatever, or they have to, to kowtow to, you know, the corporate situation. Like if, if you look at how much of all the different entertainment out there is ultimately owned by Disney, for example, Right. And then you look at, you know, what do they do? Like their, their number one goal is let's try and 
not offend anybody. Yeah. And so, okay, you make movies that the number one overriding goal is to not offend anybody. And it's movies that don't resonate with anybody that don't, they're not memorable. They don't have memorable characters. They're, they're just kind of blah. They're not horrible. It's not like you're watching a complete train wreck of a movie. Usually it's, it's like competent, but just very, very bland and very by the numbers. The best thing that they've done in the last two years is in the last three, four years is tell John Favreau, go at it, do what you want create a star war something star wars that everyone's going to enjoy and that's the mandalorian i mean that's the best thing they've put out in 10 years yeah (laughs) yeah put it put a creative person who appreciates the right the 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 world the universe uh, of, of star wars and just say here go and i'm terrified that now that that's been a success all the corporate types are going to come in and go, well, you know, you need to start checking these boxes over here and you need to like, I'm, I'm worried. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, well, worried. season two is supposed to start. It's supposed to be released on October 30th. So I guess we'll find out in eight days. Yeah. And I don't know, are they going to drop the whole season or are they going to do the, one I think they're going to do a week. Thing I think again? they're going to do one per, per week again. And I, I prefer that. I, I, I prefer it. I want to, so, and I'm glad that they did. I was really pissed off. They didn't do it on season one. Then after I saw for, um, episode one and I saw how good it was, I was like, all right, I'm glad they're doing this because I want to build some anticipation. I don't want to get this all over at once, you know, because if they would have dropped the whole season, I'd have watched that in like a day. You know, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I didn't want to do that. I, I'm a binger. Yeah. I'm, I'm an unrepentant binger. You know, I've, uh, I've been converted to just, that's the way I prefer um, I don't know. I, I find it easier to follow a show if yeah. I can just, you know, bang it out in a few days. Or I didn't get into the expanse but. until like season four. And then I like watched all four seasons in like a week and a half. <laughs> I, I was just hooked. I was like, wow, there's something like blatantly anarchist on TV. Holy crap. Well, yeah, on Amazon Prime now. So, Have you watched The Boys? Yeah. yeah. Uh, season two sort of I liked season one a lot um, season two sort of went into that direction of um, oh we're gonna have to we're gonna we're gonna put Nazis in here because we have to put Nazis in here and because that that was exactly my reaction I thought season one you know was different it it was definitely you know creative and original and and had a lot going on that was interesting and then season two it's like they they injected a lot of the sort of woke yeah. stuff into it, and then let's make the bad guys Nazis, which I just think is it's just such lazy yeah. writing. You know, it's it's the same reason that the Tarantino films that I think are the dumbest are Inglorious Bastards and um, Django, because I I feel like those movies they were just like. Well, let's make the bad guys slave owners. Well, let's make the bad guys Nazis. And like, it just, it's just so lazy and unoriginal. And it's basically then just like a revenge fantasy kind of thing of like, well, let's go, you know, horrifically murder some Nazis and everyone will think that's great and whatever. I don't know. To me, it's just easy. You've known me for a while now. What do you think my favorite Tarantino movie is? Hmm. Reservoir Dogs? No. First one I saw though, obviously. I saw that when it came out. Yeah. But, um. 
Once Upon a Time nope. in Hollywood? <laughs> oh. Nope. Fiction? <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. Jackie Brown. Oh. I love Jackie Brown. That's like one of, that is like wow. literally one of my favorite movies. I can wa- I, put it on, put it on. I'll sit down and watch it. Huh. I'll watch it in the back. I'll listen to it in the background. I mean, it's just perfect. The music, everything. Um, wow. That, that's one of those. I forget that he yeah, did that. It's so, it's so good. There's so much to the story. Um, the characters, the, the over the top, um, ness of, of, um, what's his name's character. How am I blanking on on um, Nick Fury's name? Samuel L. Jackson's character. Um, mm-hmm. The dimness of Robert De Niro's character. The ins- complete, insane, just weird Bridget Bridget Fonda character. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and Pam Greer and Robert For- Robert yeah. Forster. Robert Forster playing the um, the. Was he the bail bondsman? I mean, he's just that was just it just seemed it's like such a perfect music. I mean, perfect movie. The music is great, the story is great. Um, the story is actually believable from her point of view, and I don't know, there's just something that really resonates. It has that total, um, early 70s almost black exploitation kind of movie feel to it, and yeah, I can I can get into that. My dad used to watch a lot of those movies so yeah it's been forever since i've yeah. seen that one I, I vaguely remember it but I, I forgot that was tarantino it's it's different from yeah all of his other movies yeah. in a lot of ways yeah i mean he still has he still has some time where he messes with time where he goes back and then you see it from a different perspective a scene from a different perspective he does that um towards the end but um for the most part it's uh, pretty linear yeah, I, I have to say my favorite now is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I haven't Hollywood. seen it yet. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I no, I, I love that. That 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 became my favorite Tarantino film for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's it's just so much the opposite of most mainstream movies for the past 10 years in almost every way. Like, he, he's one of the last of, like, the, the auteurs, yeah. right? And. You know, whereas I, I don't love all his movies, I don't like Inglorious Bastards or or Django in in a bunch of ways. But like, and even um, Kill Bill. Yeah, the Kill Bill. Uh, I've of, I've fallen asleep on both of the Kill Bill movies. Yeah, it's it's like a bad video game. Yeah. Honestly, it's it's like it's almost like a Michael Bay movie where you're just sort of lost in the action, going like I don't know. And the story's so cliched. But but once it, once upon a time in, in Hollywood. Um, gets my recommendation. It, it, it's, it's a slow paced character film really that's long and takes its time, but in a good way, which is totally against the norm these days with everybody getting their, their social media ADD and there is violence, but most of it is in the last few minutes of the film. And to me, I think part of it too, is like where I'm at in life where I'm closing in rapidly on 40 I've got a kid, one of whom is a teenager, the other of whom is almost a teenager. And basically there's, there's something like general generationally going on there where um, the Brad Pitt and and DiCaprio characters are like these older guys that in the late sixties, they're like a little bit, you know, too old. And there's these younger hippie generation coming up behind them. Right. Which includes these Manson people and whatever, um, I don't know. There's just something when I watch that movie of um, kind of like makes me feel 
like a like a starting to be an old man in both good and bad ways. We're like, I'm not cool anymore. I'm kind of, you know, out of step with, with the young hipsters and whatever. But at the same time, because of what happens in the movie, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I can still fuck you people up if I have to. Do <laughs> uh, I get out of here? Yeah, man. It's been you fun. Know, we um, can talk movies. We can probably talk movies for like hours. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, f- I figured we'd, we'd start talking about two defined movies and probably go off the rails. And sure enough, <laughs> yeah. we did. It turned into a Scott Horton episode really quick. <laughs> <laughs> making yes. fun of my buddy here who I have an episode dropping with on Monday. So, <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, Scott's Scott's always great to have on your show because you can just like sit back and, you know, you just like kind of poke them a little bit, wind them up a little bit and then boom. Yeah. Right. Give you a good hour of, of what could be a book. <laughs> Whenever anybody's sick of my voice, I can just have him on and, you know, you really won't hear a lot of me. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, man, this was great. I really appreciate it. This was uh, some. I haven't done anything like this an episode in so long, where you know, talking about something that wasn't related to our you know political cages. So uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I felt almost obligated to kind of bring it up a few times, but you know, I, I like in in a way, it's like my goal would be that nothing is political, right? Since, since my politics are the politics of anti-politics, right? right? It's like, I, I guess that's another thing that turns me off about a lot of current pop culture and movies and whatever is that they always have to, usually in a very clumsy, awkward, ham-fisted way, inject a message into it. So right? ridiculous. Whereas, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's movies and books and whatever that do that well that – that have a, a political point or message or subtext or whatever that makes sense that fits the movie and isn't awkward and whatever. But today it's like so gratuitous and often just, you know, inappropriate or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's nice to just have a, have a relaxed freewheeling yeah. sort of discussion about something cool. Hopefully people listening to this, enjoy it. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And they'll check these movies out and we probably mentioned like, 50 yeah. movies over the course of the conversation. But the two so, main ones, like perfect that. for Halloween. And um, like I said, some great, some perfectly timed humor in them as well. So, yeah. Yeah, both fun, both good movies that, you know, are kind of cult classics and uh, fun retro 80s stuff. Yep. So, all right. Well, um, Freeman Beyond the Wall podcast, of course, uh, I always recommend. And um, anything else going on that you want to? Oh, no. I mean, I got, I have Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mance Raider. And um, what else? What else? I have a subscribe star now too. You can put in free man beyond the wall and what else? Unloose the goose. Let's not forget about the Unloose the goose podcast because we're both uh, parts of that. We are both. Yeah, geese. we are both geese and eh, that's about it. You know, got check out the monopoly on violence.com to if you haven't seen our documentary yet and we're getting we're in full swing planning out the second one and right now just contemplating the uh the fundraising for it. So yeah. nice. Congratulations Thanks, on that. Man. Cool. Been great talking to you, Pete, and uh happy early Halloween. Happy early Halloween. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, 
there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. 